Jewish opponents started to argue with him, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gave Stephen. This led to his uh, opponents um, bringing false charges against him, leading to his trial before the religious authorities. The authorities were subsequently enraged by Stephen's indictment of their unbelief and his, rep his revelation of seeing Christ. He, he, he saw Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. And enraged, they stoned him to death, making Stephen the first recorded martyr of the church. This was followed by a period of persecution of the church. This was the crucial turning point that drove the Christians from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. If you recall, we saw Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, to his, he said to his disciples, that you, but, when you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Although the enemies of the church, including Saul of Tarsus, brought about persecution to crush and destroy the early church movement, God in his sovereignty used that persecution to propel the church to fulfill its mission to bring the gospel beyond Jerusalem, where the early church was based, outwards to Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the known world. The ferocious rejection of the gospel by religious authorities in Jerusalem and the subsequent persecution of Jerusalem church marked the turning point where the Spirit began to take out the gospel to the greater world in fulfillment of Jesus' vision for the church. A big idea for today then is that the church needs the full empowerment of the Holy Spirit to fulfill its mission to the world. In our passage today, we see an example of how the Holy Spirit moves with compelling power to bring the word of the gospel into the lives of the people in Samaria and the Ethiopian official. We can learn and respond to the following ways in which the Holy Spirit moves. The impetus of the Spirit, the immersion of the Spirit, and the impress or the influence of the Holy Spirit. First, we need to respond to the impetus of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the driving pers personal force of the church. The early church in Jerusalem wasn't looking for trouble. They were looking to diligently preach the gospel to their fellow countrymen in Jerusalem. The city was and still is the religious and cultural center of the Jewish world. The church was birthed in Acts in the midst of the Jewish festival of the Pentecost. And the church had grown steadily in numbers as spirit-empowered apostles preached the gospel and perform signs and wonders as we see in the early chapters of Acts. This was ground zero of the early church movement. One would have thought that there would be a natural build-up of influence, prestige, and power of the church to expand outwards from Jerusalem. In fact, as we, had already, we have already seen, the church experienced a great disruption to their movement. 
when intense persecution came from the Jew, uh, Jewish religious authorities and zealots like Saul of Tarsus in an attempt to destroy the church in its growing but still early stages of its life. But whereas their persecutors hoped to destroy the church, the Holy Spirit drove the church into areas that had not until now received the word of the gospel. In trying to destroy the gospel, the persecution was providentially used by God as a catalyst to compel the church to spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we find this spirit-driven missions this way. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. As persecution scattered the believers from Jerusalem, they carried the seeds of the gospel with them wherever they went. They preached as they were scattered, dispersed, dislocated by the persecution. Scripture then highlights one of them, Philip, was one of the seven helpers along with Stephen chosen in Acts chapter 6 to help with the distribution of food to needy widows among the Hellenistic Jewish community. Here in Acts chapter 8, we read that Philip went down to a city in Samaria, not, we don't know exactly where, around the Samarian um, region and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the, the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. The passage goes on to say that there were exorcisms and healings in Philip's ministry, leading to great joy in that city. Now, there are two key things to keep in mind as we read about Philip's ministry and missions to the Samaritans. First, as we have seen, these missionary endeavors were carried out as a result of persecution from the church home base in Jerusalem. Second, Philip's entry into Samaria marked a crucial transition that turned Christianity from a solely Jerusalem-centric base to a broader growth trajectory that would encompass their known world at that time. Philip's mission then represents the impetus, the, the driving force of the Holy Spirit in empowering missions from the persecuted church and into crossing new frontiers in spreading the gospel. Are we today still a church driven by the Holy Spirit to break new ground in spreading the gospel and performing the works of the kingdom? Recently, I was uh, uh, listening to an online seminar by Bishop Emeritus uh, Hua Yong on, uh, was uh, entitled was, uh, uh, Wesley a Charismatic. Uh, in that, he shared a, a story about the church, the early church um, in China. Uh, in the time of the 30s and 40s, Zhong Song was the, the key pioneer, one of the key pioneers in spreading the gospel in China, and a fantastic work. But um, in the early 40s, after you know, several years of, of preaching the gospel, and there were indeed fruits of that, um, of, of that preaching, Zhong Song was just struggling uh, with the Lord. Um, he knew the great potential of, of, of the gospel in China, but he was struggling before the Lord why was there no um, powerful move of, of you know, the, the work of the, the Lord, although he has seen 
um, a lot of conversions, but I think he felt there was so much more potential. And this is what he, I mean, Bishop uh, kind of relate what uh, Jong Sung recorded in his journal. Um, he, the Lord seemed to speak to him to say that in, this was in the early 40s, um, the Lord seemed to convict him to say that the, the Western missionaries had you know, control over all the church buildings, the hospitals, the, the schools, and they're not giving him control over all these institutions that have been built up. And secondly, the Chinese pastors were subservient to the Western missionaries. They listened to what they say. Their pay came from the Western missionaries. And so instead of depending on God, they were depending on these uh, Western missionaries. And the Lord gave him this word that he's going to clean out the missionaries. The missionaries will be driven out of China. And all these conveniences, these comfort zones will be taken away from them. And then revival will come. John Song himself um, passed away in, in 1944, I believe, and in late in the late 40s, the communist China, the communists came into power in um, China. Early 50s, um, the, the communist party or the communist power this, uh, began to expel the, the missionaries from China. Uh, the church lost everything. They took away all their land, their facilities, their institution. And um, a lot of Western um, missionaries thought that the church movement would, would, would just die in China. So great was the persecution. In the 70s, then in the 70s, uh, there was uh, initial reports of a great revival starting. And that was the starting point of the greatest revival in the church history. And, and God was true to his word to Jong Sung that once all those dependencies were taken away, then revival came. Do pandemics, political and social economic crisis, compel us to rely on God's power for breakthroughs in the kingdom, or do we retreat into our shells and hope that we come out in one piece? Acts chapter 8 shows us the early believers lived with a sense of mission. They carried with them the gospel, even when they were scattered from their homes, their comfort, their, their livelihoods, because of the persecution. Their lives were disrupted but they were driven by a sense of mission and purpose by the Holy Spirit. We often hold on to our sense of convenience, comfort zones and complacency because they give us an illusion of control. We want, we want a sense of control over our lives, but we forget that the cause of discipleship means we surrender our insistence of control over to the Lordship of Christ. Discipleship involves us holding loosely to our own plans, possessions and priorities and sense of control, but holding on tightly to God. We hold lightly to our own plans. We hold tightly to God's sovereignty and His plans. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul in effect says, I have lost all things in order to gain Christ. We can't hold on to our conveniences and comfort zones 
if we want to experience revival and the powerful work of the Spirit in the life of the church. We cannot be complacent about our spiritual condition or sin in our own lives if we are to witness Spirit-driven breakthroughs. When God's Spirit moves, there's no power on earth or under the earth that can stop it. But God, in His infinite grace and mercy, often waits for His people to be ready before He acts. God can always act unilaterally without involving the church. But since God redeemed the church to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus, God often waits for His people to be ready with patience and long-suffering. God is not unwilling to bring revival and spiritual breakthroughs. But are we willing to pay the price of revival? Are we willing to bear the cross of discipleship? We look at this country and we weep. We consider our sin-sick world and we sometimes question the goodness of God. We ask why does not God act? But we forget to ask, were we ever willing, as his people, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord? Were we ever prepared to obey God and live sacrificially for the sake of others, to live in holiness and righteousness in every aspect of our lives? We want to experience the joy and blessings of the Lord, and God does desire to bless his people but we sometimes act as if we want nothing of God himself, especially when it comes to the demands of discipleship and commitment to obedience. Now, I'm not saying that we must earn our salvation or accomplish revival by our works. No, salvation is a gift of God and revival is the work of God. But having been saved by grace, we are called to give ourselves fully to the Lord's work. And revival comes when God's people are moved by God's Spirit to a deeper level of obedience and holiness in order that we might be proper channels through which God will pour out His Spirit to heal and transform the world around us. So here's our first reflection question. Are you ready to go where the Spirit sends you? Are you willing to obey what the Spirit tells you? And there may be things in your life that are holding you back. God is gracious and merciful. We can bring these doubts and these fears and these constraints uh, before the Lord.
Second, we must experience the immersion of the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Philip was chosen with Stephen to be one of the seven designated helpers because he was full of the Spirit and wisdom, as Acts chapter 6, verse 3 tells us. In Acts chapter 8, we see that uh, in Samaria, Philip preached the gospel with the accompanying signs and wonders, just like the apostles first did in Jerusalem. The breakthroughs witnessed by the people impressed even Simon, the sorcerer, who was known as a powerful sorcerer in Samaria. Now, Simon had his own bag of tricks and could conjure up impressive wonders that awed the people of Samaria. But nothing in Simon's experience, nor in the people's imagination, prepared them for what they witnessed to be the real power of the Holy Spirit that Philip worked amongst them. The signs and wonders that they saw through Philip made Simon's tricks look like simple child's play in kindergarten. There will always be counterfeit powers in opposition to authentic spirit-enabled signs and wonders. In the time of Moses, the Pharaoh's magicians could also conjure some signs to try to counter the miraculous signs that God worked through Moses. But counterfeit powers always come up short against God's authentic power. The signs of spiritual breakthrough and deliverance are not for our entertainment. They are not for the thrill of it. They are not meant to sensationalize the faith. The signs that accompany the preaching of the gospel is a demonstration that the kingdom of God has broken the powers of sin and darkness, that people held in sin and bondage have been delivered into the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus. The signs that accompany the proclamation of the gospel always lead to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And Philip led the Samaritans who responded with faith to be baptised in the name of Jesus. However, Acts 8 verse 16 makes clear that these Samaritan believers did not immediately receive the Holy Spirit. It was only when the Jerusalem church sent um, Peter and John to investigate that the believers received the baptism of the Holy Spirit when the apostles laid hands on them. Now, some um, may use this to explain that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is distinct and separate from water baptism, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes after water baptism. But other passages in Acts um, shows that this is not always the case. In Acts chapter 10, Paulinus and his household received the Holy Spirit before water baptism. In Acts chapter 8, the, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, probably received the Holy Spirit at the same time as water baptism, although this is not explicitly stated. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives the complete picture of the conversion and reception of the Holy Spirit as the one single act of God's salvation. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is clear from Acts that God will sovereignly work with the 
with the actual experience of his salvation act. Some may experience a powerful encounter of the Holy Spirit before coming to water baptism, and some experience a powerful infilling of the Holy Spirit after water baptism. In our Methodist tradition, we believe that the Holy Spirit is already present during conversion and baptism. For us, water baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward grace. The ritual itself points to the actual real work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart and who comes to believe and be baptized. However, we believe that every believer should, be seek, should seek to be filled continuously with the Holy Spirit, even after water baptism. In other words, there is one baptism, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, but we are to seek fresh in feelings of the Holy Spirit after baptism. The believers in Samaria in this particular instance did not receive the Holy Spirit at the time of their baptism. This incident appears to be an exception where God sovereignly withheld the Holy Spirit until the apostles from Jerusalem came to lay hands on them. Now, although this is not explicit, the likely explanation for this is that God wanted the Jerusalem church, the Jewish, um, the Christian Jews represented by the apostles to see for themselves the reception of the Holy Spirit by the Samaritans and therefore accept them as genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. At that time, Jews and Samaritans uh, had a rather um, hostile relationship. It is also possible that the laying of hands of the apostles from Jerusalem confirmed to the Samaritans the authority of the Jerusalem church in preserving the teachings of the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Samaritans at that time had, or now as well, the Samaritans had their own understanding of the Messiah whom they considered as a second Moses or the second coming of Moses himself to restore true worship on their local mountain there at Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. So their experience of receiving the Holy Spirit through the prayer and laying of hands of the apostles from Jerusalem integrates them into the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ entrusted to the apostles in Jerusalem. Whatever different church traditions have about the exact nature or sequence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all Christians should agree that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit as an integral part of the complete experience of the Christian faith. But what are some of the signs of being filled with the Spirit? Again, it should be recognized that there are a variety of ways which believers experience the infilling of the Holy Spirit. There's often a deep conviction of sin. When the Holy Spirit comes, we are made aware of God's holy presence. At the same time, we are deeply convicted about our fallen sinful nature. This leads to genuine repentance, a renewed turning of our lives to, to God. Some will receive tongues, either as a foreign language unknown to the believer or angelic tongues unknown to humans. With the conviction of sin, there's also an inexpressible joy that overflows at God's mercy or deep abiding assurance and peace 
of God's love and forgiveness. Some would also experience physical manifestations like warmth, tears, spontaneous praise or worship. As Nikki Gumbel says, the actual physical manifestations does not matter in the end. The key is to experience the depth of God's love for you. What's the difference between a, non, a nominal Christian experience and a spirit-filled one? A Christian life without fresh infillings of the spirit is like having a broken crack mark where you draw water from a shallow well in the desert. You can survive, but you, you won't thrive. A spirit-filled life is rivers of living waters that gush in the desert. We are still in an imperfect world, but we are so filled with the love of Christ and the life of Christ that flows like a gushing river in us so that we can thrive in the midst of the wilderness of an imperfect world. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, God promises the Spirit this way, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. I'd like to invite you to reflect on the following question. Do you desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit today? Third, we move with the impress of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit guides and convicts us 
in our mission. In times of revival, we will likely have both miraculous breakthroughs and intense spiritual warfare. We need the convictions, the guiding impressions of the Spirit to help us navigate through between the breakthroughs and spiritual warfare. Breakthroughs in terms of signs and wonders, conversions and growth, spiritual warfare in terms of persecution, disunity, deceptions, excesses and spiritual attacks. It's only through the Holy Spirit's guiding voice and convictions, the strong impressions that the Spirit puts into the hearts and minds of church leaders and members together with the authority of God's Word that will keep the flame of revival strong and authentic discipleship and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. These impressions or convictions of the Holy Spirit could sometimes, for some, come through an audible voice, sometimes through dreams and visions, more often through conviction, through scripture, and a small, still, but strong inner voice. It's always possible to have mistaken impressions. It's possible to have a wrong conviction. There are falsehoods and deception, even dangerous abuses. We need a mature Christian community to be able to pray and discern how we are hearing from the Lord. But we should not reject any impressions or convictions out of hand, but test the truth of it with the overall counsel of God's Word, whether it builds up and edifies the church or tears down and discourages the church, whether it puffs up, puffs up human pride or vanity or whether it leads to humanity. We need to discern whether a word of the Lord leads to authentic discipleship or counterfeit Christianity. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19 to 22, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Human plans, logic and common sense are necessary and important but they must be subordinate to the leading and impress the influence of the Holy Spirit. At times, the direction and call of the Spirit is beyond human logic and understanding. Or like the call of Abraham, we will not see the complete picture. In Philip's case, we read that it was the angel of the Lord who first compelled him to take a great detour down south onto the road to Gaza, after a remarkable evangelistic mission to Samaria in the north. Now, Philip had seen mighty signs and wonders in that region uh, in, in Samaria. We are not exactly sure of the exact city, but generally in the north of Judea through his preaching and, and ministry in that area. Now, human logic and reasoning were, alone would have dictated that he remained there to um, leverage on the recent successes. Even for, and, and use that for even more effective work. Instead of venturing south, it didn't make much sense to venture south and take up a position somewhere on the desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza. At the very least, learning from recent successes in Samaria would naturally lead Philip to focus on cities, the urban 
urban ministry, urban centres, and not wander, not wander along a desert road in the middle of nowhere. But the spirit positioned Philip to witness the eunuch who was a high-ranking official from the kingdom of Ethiopia. This nation represented the southmost region of the known world of the Mediterranean basin. This was literally the ends of the earth in the world of the apostles. And this was a hugely strategic move of God to bring the gospel word to this Gentile kingdom through this high-ranking official. This was another new frontier that was being crossed by the church. Being in a position to share God's word was the breakthrough not only for the eunuch individually, but for the whole Ethiopian kingdom potentially. Human planning alone would have little, if any, chance of Philip meeting the eunuch at the right time and at the right place. In our recent Experiencing God course, I was uh, asking the participants the reason why they joined Penang Trinity. One of the participants said that she's decided to join a, our church a few years ago because of our vision, nurturing disciples to be a spirit-filled, impactful church. It was a very um, well, moving response for me in that it affirmed how God led the church leadership a number of years ago to adopt this vision. On the other hand, there's also a sense of accountability as well for both church leaders and members. Are we living up to what God has entrusted to us? Fulfilling our shared vision of being spirit-filled, impactful disciples would require much commitment and sacrifice on our part in responding to God's gracious invitation to join Him at work. We make time for God, not expect God to make a convenient time for us to serve and obey. Jesus is our master. And when the master calls, the servant drops whatever he is doing to attend to the master. But God is also our gracious Heavenly Father. When we say yes to him, he will nurture and raise us up as his very own sons and daughters. We are today making the choice either to go with God or to go on our own. To go with God is to abandon our sense of entitlements and insistence of control. To go on our own is to miss spiritual breakthroughs and revival as the Lord works around us. In the Gospel, we read about the disciples in the boat with Jesus in a terrible storm. They thought that they were going to perish. But with Jesus in the boat, they were actually in the safest place in the world. Jesus also told the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. The rich and complacent landowner had all he wanted, was making great plans for business expansion, bigger and bigger barns. But he's in a very dangerous place. His soul is in extreme jeopardy. You may be going through a storm right now, but if you have Jesus, you are in the safest place imaginable. When you have Jesus, you have everything good you need, everything. 
Or you may be going through the best time of your life. All your dreams and ambitions coming true. But if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. Nothing good that will last. I'd like to invite you, all of us, to make a covenant commitment and relationship with the Lord to be a spirit-filled, impactful church, to move with the impetus, the driving force of the spirit, and to be immersed in a spirit-filled life. We want to pray and say, yes, Lord, not wait, Lord, or so many other things to look after, Lord. Yes, Lord, with God being my helper. One last encouragement before we pray. When you say, yes, Lord, today, you will not be alone. Yes, you will have personal responsibility and commitment to the Lord, but you are also in a community of disciples. I share your responsibility to make sure you grow as a disciple. And if I stumble and fall, you share my responsibility to help me get up and grow in the Lord. And so we are all in together. And so I'd just like to invite us to come before the Lord and open your hearts and your lives to Him and receive all that God has desired for you to receive as we surrender our lives to Him. Father, with fearful and trembling hearts, we come to you to renew our covenant commitment to be a spirit-filled, impactful church. You know too well our sins and failures, our our weaknesses and our weak commitments. We have tried in our own strength and understanding. We have fallen short and failed. We confess and ask for your mercy and forgiveness. But this day we want to say, yes, Lord, to all you want us to be, to all you call us to be, with the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. We want to believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. And so, Lord, look into every heart right now. With faith as small as the master seed, we say, yes, Lord. I give you my life. I want to live a spirit-filled life. Lord, let your spirit fall on us in power let each one here who says, yes, Lord, be filled and immersed with the Holy Spirit. There are some here or online who need salvation or need to be reminded of their salvation. As they say, yes, Lord, to you, may you fill them now with the joy of your salvation. Lord, there are some here or online that need 
your breakthrough, your deliverance, your healing today. We have no power ourselves to bring the breakthrough. But we pray now of your power that brings the breakthrough. Bring your work of power that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be lifted up in the lives of those whom we are praying for right now. Revive our church with the full immersion of your Holy Spirit that we may once again experience your work powerfully in our midst. Make us be a church that nurtures disciples to be a spirit-filled, impactful church for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.